Genesis 49 and verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCurry. And I'm Brian Bales. And I'm Wes Brown. I'm Michael Valenzuela. And I'm Patty Kendall. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Genesis chapters 48 through 50. We're going to be finishing up the book today. Uh, Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading to make sure that you know that reading the Bible is not an intimidating practice. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible, and we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. We're so thankful for you taking the time to listen, whether you're driving, whether you're at home. Uh, we're grateful for you taking the time to uh, to listen today. Before we start, we do want to let you get in touch, know how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, if you search at Walking Through the Book, you can find us very easily there. Uh, you can also email us, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And of course, uh, we would encourage you to check out the website where this podcast and other podcasts are located, northcolumbuschristians.com. That's the website of the congregation that I work with uh, and worship with in Columbus, Mississippi. And of course, we have some uh, different voices with us today. Um, the last episode, we, uh, we were and are still at uh, Profitable for Teaching. Uh, which is a lectureship in Russellville, Alabama. Uh, thankful for uh, Stephen Russell for organizing the event and also allowing us to uh, do this recording here while we're here. And of course, I'm, I'm thankful for uh, the other voices that are here. Um, uh, Wes Brown is a preacher from uh, the, I guess you would say, southern Birmingham area. Something to that effect? Yes, sir. Central Alabama, between Tuscaloosa and Birmingham, the North Bibb Church of Christ. Um, in Woodstock, Alabama. Uh, so uh, our website is www.northbibchurchofchrist.com. And so uh, we'd be glad to have somebody to uh, to check in with us and be glad to have them visit with us if, if they're in the area. Very good. And uh, Michael Valenzuela uh, is visiting over here with Bryant. Uh, and he actually, uh, Mike, I know you worship with Bryant. Uh, what do you do? Uh, I fill in for Bryant from time to time. I also teach some of the classes from time to time and uh, really just uh, fill in as, as needed where I can. Okay, very good. Well, like, what do you do for a living as well? Oh, uh, construction inspections, uh, own a landscaping business, and uh, run behind two fast little kids. <laughs> very good. And uh, Patty, um, why don't you introduce yourself and let everybody know how to get in touch with you. Uh, my name is Paddy Kendallball, and uh, you can get hold of me through my email. It's ps1970kb.smith at gmail.com. I preach for a small congregation in Athens, Alabama called Southside, 
and we would be glad to have you come and visit with us if you're in the area and you are free to contact me on that uh, email anytime you like and I'll be glad to correspond with you. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for uh, being here and taking the time to, to be with us on the program. Uh, Brian, why don't you run through the flow of the program and uh, let, everybody, let everybody know that maybe new listeners uh, how to get in touch with you. Yeah, so uh, I uh, work with the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia, and our website right now is the Garden City, well, not the, but GardenCityChurchOfChrist.org. Uh, we have a Facebook page as well uh, on the west, western side of downtown Savannah uh, on 21 Augusta Road if you're ever visiting in the area. Um, and my personal email is cartoonguy5 at hotmail.com if you ever want to type that silly email address into your, uh, into your email and, and uh, get in contact. And so the flow of the program um, is really simple if you're listening for the first time. Uh, we just start by just reading the text, simple and pure as that is. And we always start the program with just talking about some initial observations uh, from the text itself. And uh, early, earlier in Genesis as well, just kind of putting the pieces together and maybe pointing things out that maybe haven't um, we haven't put our attention on before or things that we've noticed before that maybe in some new angle uh, caught our attention. Uh, and then we, after that, we always try to look at some themes, connecting themes that we've seen in the text. So this would be um, since we're at the end of Genesis, obviously it would be things that connect to the overall story of Genesis. It would be things that might connect to the overall story of the Old Testament or to Jesus himself uh, or even to the New Testament church. Just generally we're trying to look at in our theme section, how do things connect together? What, what connections can we, can we see within the text to other things outside of it? And we always try to end the program looking at some applications that we can take with us as well, some tangible things that... Um, can really maybe convict us and stay in our heart that can um, change us uh, because of the text. So we'll be, we'll be trying to follow that, that method today in our discussion. All right. Well, if nothing else, we'll get into our reading. We'll be reading Genesis uh, 48. Uh, Brother Patty, uh, what, what translation are you reading from? Uh, the New King James. Okay. And then uh, Brother Wes will be reading chapter 49 from the King James. King James. And uh, I'll be reading uh, chapter 50 from the New King James. Genesis chapter 48, beginning with verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multiple 
multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you begat after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Paden, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel blessed Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given to me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I have not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people. He also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. But God will be with you and bring you back into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Genesis chapter 49, beginning with verse 1. And Jacob <clears throat> called unto his sons and said, 
Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, and then defiled thou it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, thou art he whom the brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stoopeth down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rise him up, arouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal under the vine and his ass's coat under the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea and he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Issachar is a strong ass, couching down between two burdens. And he saw that the rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant unto tribute. Dan shall judge his people, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heel, so that the rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by the, a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him, and shot at him, and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, 
and his arm, the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee? And by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie under, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is it that their father spake unto them and blessed them, every one according to his blessing he blessed them. And he charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought bought with the field of Ephraim the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth, when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed, yielded up the ghost, and was gathered unto his people. Genesis 50, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried 
him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us, and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I think it's just interesting that you know, what we're reading is the is the end of the beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and so this is the end of the beginning. It's been an amazing story, and uh, that you guys have been covering here. A fellow made the point with me as a young student, and I hadn't and I haven't uh, hadn't thought about it at that time, but I thought about it a lot since. If you think about the Bible chronologically. Um, the book of Genesis covers more time than all the other books put together. We think about it as the first of 66 books, but actually it's it is quite a vast story. But God, of course, focuses in to tell us not everything uh, or even most things, but, but for his particular purpose, he's introducing what we need to know to get ready for the rest of the book. And so that's the, and we're bringing that part to a close. And so it's a, it's poignant, really. It's great. It's a great uh, way to end this this first part right. of the a, history. What a beautiful ending, too. A family reunited. 
and the best place they could be. Yeah. One of the things that's impressive to me is that the prophecies that were made about the future and the promises that God made concerning the future are beginning to unfold. And it's not going to be, well, it's going to be several hundred years, but it won't be all that length of time in the overall picture before two of the promises that God made to Abraham back in chapter 12 are going to be kept in full. Absolutely. And that's a testimony to the accuracy of the Bible and the reliability of the Scriptures. For our new listeners, if this is your first time listening, we try in this section to limit our focus to what we've seen in these chapters so far, as well as looking back in Genesis as well. And we're trying to basically follow the story. And as has already been mentioned, uh, this is the end of the story. And Brian, it's, it's kind of, it feels weird coming to the end of this book. It really feels like this is all we've ever done with this podcast. And just really fascinating to get to this point. Yes, it is. And I'm, I'm grateful to have such uh, good fellows to, to be with us and help us out with, with this as well. But um, what were some things, uh, gentlemen, and uh, any of you want to chime in, what are some things that in the chapter that, that seemed particularly interesting to you? Well, in chapter 48, um, when Joseph knows that he's dying, I mean, Jacob knows he's dying, he takes care of uh, the future for his son. And I've always found it interesting that somehow he knew that the blessing that he was giving should go first to the youngest and then the oldest Mm. after that. And although that did not please Joseph in the wisdom of God and in the working out of God's plans, not Joseph's plans, but God's plans, uh, he caused Jacob to bless Ephraim and put him before Manasseh. And I think it's a lesson for us that God has plans that we don't know about. And our plans like someone once said, don't always work out. (laughs) And that's true. But God's always work out. And what he does is for our good and for the good of his people, always. Yeah, I never noticed in um, verse 10, it emphasizes he could not see. But then in verse 11, it says, God has let me see your children as well. And like he's purposely putting his hands, it emphasizes he could not see. Then he puts his hands. So it's almost like God was helping him perceive, obviously, because it was not by his own ability that he was mm-hmm. then even understanding what he, because he knew what he was doing, obviously, but not yeah. not by his own perception, obviously, like you were saying. Yeah. You know, one point that's always struck me, um, if I might jump ahead just a little bit, talking about Joseph. You read the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. And and we're not surprised to find his name there. But I think about all the things in his amazing life and all the times in which his 
faith was shown and tested and all of the struggles he went through. The thing that the Hebrew writer mentions is that uh, Hebrews eleven twenty two by faith Joseph when he died made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Yeah, it wasn't his salvation of Egypt. It wasn't you know his coming out of prison. It wasn't his faith as a young man. And yet, you know, I used to wonder why why that. I think that's the cap on the whole thing. I think that just is, that's the, the one example the Holy Spirit gives to say that this man's faith was unshakable. And even to the last moment of his life, here is Joseph, a man who has been through all of this. And then, and of course, I'm assuming some things here, but I think as we read chapter 50, it's obvious uh, he can go back and bury his father, but he says, you have to take my bones. And so as Bible students, we, 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 um, suggest from that, that that things have changed in Egypt. And now Joseph, there's not the freedom when Joseph's time comes as there was in the earlier days. And so here's Joseph who has been in the trough and on the mountaintop and in the trough at the mountaintop. And it seems maybe back in a low point, but he has not a question in his mind that we're coming out of this place. And when you do take my ball, all of that screams faith. And I think that's why perhaps the Holy Spirit chose that particular event because it sort of in itself encapsulates all of his life of faith. And I just marvel at that. I feel so inadequate sometimes, you know, that, you know, I, I get, I, I, I'm aggravated at how easily sometimes I get discouraged. And Joseph stands there like a beacon. He says, this is what faith looks like. And um, and that's that's the way the book of Genesis ends with that great you know statement of confidence. Looks dark again. We've been here before, boys. The Lord's going to take care of us. When He does, don't forget me. And we've seen that promise to Abraham earlier. You know, God showed him very clearly right. that your people are going to be afflicted right. in a nation that's not theirs in a foreign land. And it, it, it does remind me too. And the point that you're making, I think, is so valid because. It reminds me of when Jesus, and I know I'm breaking my own rules here. Jesus uh, and his disciples are about to go across the Sea of Galilee. And before they go out there and get caught up in that storm, Jesus says, we're going to go over there and come back. You know, we're going to go to that place. We're going to go across the, the, the Sea of Galilee. That implied promise that says, we'll make it there. Uh, I think that's a similar thought here. That uh, it's not directly said, but it's such a, Strong implication. There's another thought that crossed my mind about chapter 48. And going on into chapter 49, because that's where he's blessing <clears throat> Joseph, is that, and uh, I was reminded when we said, nothing is said about his life in, Gen in Hebrews, except the end. But is perhaps the, the double blessing that he gets through Ephraim and Manasseh, an indication of recognition for how godly he has been mm -hmm. and how ungodly his other sons have been in a general way. 
And so he's blessing that life. And that's that's how actually God works throughout the whole scriptures. He blesses those who live according to his word. And one of the things that to me has always been remarkable about Joseph's story is that it says over and over again in the earlier chapters, God was with Joseph. But he wasn't only was with Joseph, he was with those people who Joseph influenced and was enslaved to. In fact, God prospered Potiphar. God saved Egypt through Joseph. And uh, I also have wondered how it was that a 17-year-old boy could have such a great faith. He must have been taught something by his parents about the God that they served and the promises that the God they served made That's about their future. Yeah, Bryant and I have been discussing all through the time of looking at Genesis how it's, it's really amazing how these patriarchs had such a personal relationship with God and the implied... I mean, we've seen it with Isaac. We don't get that much about Isaac, really. Mm-hmm. But there's so much that we see about Isaac through Jacob. And there's so much that we see about Jacob through Joseph. Um, you know, sometimes you see the truth about people through their kids. And I think that's true here as well. And so that's one thread that we've been looking at. And another thing I wanted to mention there, too. Um, you know, one thing that jumped out at me here just in this reading uh, in verse 31 of chapter 49, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Leah is last. Mm. Leah seems to always be last in Jacob's mind. And that's just, we've commented on that, Bryant, how that's just sort of sad. And it, it goes back to thinking about how Leah loved Jacob so much, but that love was never returned. And yet, you know, she gave him so much. And it seems like she was a good wife overall, but I I don't know for sure. But uh, I just, that's still fascinating to me. Um, But even then, in this case, she's resting, her body is resting with the family. Uh, Rachel is buried, you know, seemed sort of be buried on the road. And so even though she was overlooked and, she never received that love from Jacob. She was loved by God. Yeah, I think it's, um, to me, um, very poignant words. I'm trying to remember. Um, when uh, Leah, uh, over in chapter 30, forgive me for going back, but since you brought this up, it's, it's always yeah. been touching to me. To your point, Leah conceived again and bare Jacob the sixth son. And Leah said, God has now endued me with a, a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. She's still trying to get that straight after all that. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, Leah to me is always my favorite. Because she's she's the one that gets trodden on by her father, by her husband, and none of it's her fault, as far as I can tell. Um, must have had a lot of quality about her. 
you know, speaking of, of quality and a failure for quality, can I add something to what Brother Kinderball said a while ago? He was mentioning about Joseph um, receiving, in effect, the double portion for Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's really the place of the firstborn. But Joseph is the substitute for the firstborn because of his quality. Uh, you know, would God have blessed Reuben? Well, he would have if he'd let him. But instead, he says about Reuben in chapter 49, the beginning of my strength, dignity, excellency. But his father has to say about him, and God through his father has to say about him. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel because of his immorality. When I was a kid, I used to hear preachers maybe make a point from this passage. Maybe it's just from the King James. I'm not sure how it reads in other passages, but other translations. But they used to talk about, they would say, uh, you know what shape water is? And of course, we kids would say, whatever, whatever it's in, you know. You gotta have character. You can't be just molded, you know, but <laughs> unstable as water. You gotta you gotta know who you are, you gotta stand for something. You can't just be shaped by everything around you. But I'm not really sure that's the point of it here. I think I think perhaps the idea of unstable as water um, has to do with the idea of, of water boiling. And and that fits the, the, the context, you know, that that that, that Reuben is like boiling water, unstable. And I think it has to do with his lust, whether it be sexual or anger or whatever it might be. Um, why did God bless one and curse the other? It had to do with their choice. God wants to bless everybody, but he's not going to bless us if we're as unstable as water. And uh, there's a lesson there as well. You can have all the advantages, and he certainly had them, Reuben did. But he made a mess of them. And in the end, God's going to give us what we asked for. You know, kind of going down this list, uh, just to kind of appreciate a few things, um, I would take it, and I'd love y'all's thoughts. Uh, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Um, I would take that to refer back to chapter 34 with the incident with Dinah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, I don't know if anybody had any, any words about that. Um, and we, we'll actually sort of revisit that point in the next section, too, because we want to look forward with Levi as well, but uh, also with Judah. You know, they seem to get away with it, but God did forget. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I've always thought about is that, well, you know, you read over 34, that's like they got scot free. Nope, nope, nope. No, they would pay, and, and ultimately the tribe would pay because of that. Right. And when we studied that, Brian, we talked about how, like, their their issue was genuine. You know, shall they treat our sister like a har- harlot? But that does not excuse their actions. And right. I think that's what we sort of concluded in that, in, that, uh, in that program. Yeah, and it's interesting that Judah then inherits the blessing. It's almost like it goes, Reuben doesn't get it. Simeon doesn't get it. Levi doesn't get it. So Judah gets it. Well, what does Judah get? That's that's kind of the question in, in my mind. It's like how how would how would you read this outside of some other things we're going to discuss? Right. I think you know. I think verse ten through twelve, especially. I think uh, 
Well, I think 8 through 12 are really messianic. And I get, we'll talk about that in the next section, in the theme section. But, but I will say that, like, uh, I've understood that, that 10 has been misrepresented and mistranslated uh, before mm. to basically talk like, uh, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until they come to Shiloh. Mm. And Shiloh as a location rather than a person. Right. I've understood uh, that to be a mis- misrepresentation of what's actually being said there. Right. I mean, and, the American uh, Standard says, until Shiloh comes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I'm not talking about specific translation doing that, but I'm right. just talking about it's been misinterpreted, misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, I think we all will know kind of the purpose there. Uh, one thing that's impressed me about these first 10 verses is that he's jumped over the ones who have the right to the birthright because of what they did. Mm-hmm. And Simeon and Levi are disqualified because of what they did. But when you think about what he says to jo- to uh, Judah is prophetic of what's going to happen later. And I remember think, reading this some years ago and thinking, a lawgiver from between his feet, what does that mean? Well, he's, he's not talking about Moses, because Moses is not a Judean, he's a Levite. So, in effect, God is telling that the leadership and the law-giving aspect is going to come out of Judah. But that's not physical. That's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve, you asked the question of what does this mean? I, I'm not sure that they had a clue what it meant. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, we're so smart because we have the New Testament to make it plain. Yeah. The lion. The lion. Uh, as you mentioned, the lawgiver, Shiloh, peace, Prince of Peace, all of this comes crystal clear when the Lord, you know, helps me to see that. But uh, but I'm sure there was quite a bit of mystery about some of these things. Maybe that's why they looked into to see if they could find out what was going on. <laughs> but the Lord kept it a secret until right. the time should come. Uh, I, I don't really have much to say about... Uh, any of the other brothers from 13 to 21. Um, there are some questions we could get into as to what these things actually mean. Um, but uh, I would like to focus on uh, Joseph right now. And uh, I, I, I can hear almost the delight in Jacob's voice in proclaiming these things about Joseph. And, uh, you know, what, what a sad story. He's basically been 22 years away from his home, away from his family. Um, and I, I love, by the way, uh, in chapter 48, um, let's see, um, yeah, verse 11. I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring, that joy in Jacob's heart uh, being given to him. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this too, Brian, how, you know, we always need to be careful when we look at these Old Testament characters. It's easy for us to dismiss Jacob's favoritism, uh, dismiss Jacob on the basis of his favoritism. But 
you know, again, as we've already mentioned, how can you blame him uh, for appreciating this good, godly son that, uh, you know, on our end from the text, doesn't seem like he ever did anything wrong. I know that he was still human, and I'm sure he made some errors, but uh, his his faith, as as, uh, Brother Patty mentioned, is incredible. Um, And and, and this blessing we can see is not, uh, I'm not sure that it's particularly prophetic, but, I mean, it's an appreciation, I think, for all the things that he's been through. I also think we learn a lesson from Joseph that when you see the length of time that his faith has demonstrated from right from youth to his deathbed and he's just another man like <laughs> I used to think of these guys as superhuman but they're not they're just like us and if he can do that, why can't you and I? Yes, sir. And the secret is his trust in the living God. Mm-hmm. You know, Joseph was never a man who took a shortcut. Mm-hmm. You know, no no moral shortcuts yeah. with Joseph. You know, he was committed. Yeah. He had character. You suppose any of the brothers were really surprised by the prophecy? Mm-hmm. I suspect everybody would have known. This is, uh, you know, didn't get what I liked, but I got what I deserved. Um, I think that's true about uh, about Joseph as well. At the end, they're not trying to outdo him. They're just begging for mercy. Mm-hmm. And they found it. And, and we would expect that so. And that is something I think that is praiseworthy in these past few chapters that we've seen that they do not resist Joseph. They don't act as victims. They don't push back against Joseph's somewhat harsh treatment of them, which another thing we, we noticed in previous chapters is that his words and his attitude are harsh, yet every action he takes toward them is one of love and care. And and uh, that that's fascinating to me. Um, you know, one, one thing, too, that I don't want to sound too much like a broken record, but I love the pharaohs in Genesis. They seem to be rather nice guys. Uh, I, you know, just the, the general impression I, I have of them. Uh, maybe that's because you have such a lousy uh, pharaoh in the book to come. But uh, but it is so interesting to see how uh, how amenable this pharaoh is toward what Joseph would want. Which I mean, again, how can you blame him? He's essentially saved the kingdom, and. Uh, uh, allowing him to go up and, and, and bury his father uh, and, and the amount of Egyptians actually that go with them and important people in the kingdom, it would seem, to the point that the Canaanites view this and they're saying, well, this must be a big deal for the Egyptians. So I find that fascinating. Maybe except for the one at the end, the very end. Because it seems, again, Joseph is in a bad spot here and Israel is in a bad spot by the time the book ends. So we'll make him an exception. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but that's right. You make a good point. Can we just say one? I don't know how this format works, guys. I'm sorry. I'll just mention one other thing. Um, you may want to discuss in, in chapter 50. It's um, 
verse 20 when he talks about you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. We talk about providence. There's a good description of it. God respects free will. God gives free will. And yet God is able to work with the choices we make to work his will. Um, God is sovereign, but God is also fair. And um, the story that we find here is, is a good example of that. You know, God didn't make these brothers evil, but God used even their evil uh, to work his purpose. And they were not going to stop the Lord from accomplishing his will. So that's always been a, a wonderful lesson. You know, the story of Joseph, is, is, as you all know, is, is the story of providence. The word is not used, but it's everywhere in the story. Very much so. Well, um, unless y'all have any more uh, observations. Go ahead, Brent. I've got a couple. Uh, one is back in chapter 48. So something I never noticed before is the flow between 47 and 48. So 47, 20 through uh, 26, or really 13 through 26, all of the people who are not Egyptians, including the Egyptians, have to sell themselves. So even Egyptians who are in Egypt have to sell everything they have to even live. 48 through 50. Joseph's brothers, who are not even Egyptians, don't have to sell themselves. Not only do they not have to sell themselves, they don't just receive seed and life, they receive life more abundantly. So each of them gets a unique blessing. And they're sinners. Like they, If anyone deserved to not only not receive seed but die, it was Joseph's brothers. They betrayed the leader who is now, who is now the leader of Egypt before he was put into that position. So instead of getting what they deserve, they get these enormous, incredible, life-changing, world-changing blessings when all the other people of Egypt had to meagerly sell themselves just to even live at all. It's just what an incredible lesson in grace to be related to Joseph, you know? And obviously we can return to that in the theme section, but I just had never noticed that flow in the story before that contrast, you know, of, of abundant life being given. Uh, and then I guess really quickly, because um, we've had so much good discussion already, I'll just make another just very brief um, observation. Um, uh, which one to make here? Um, so Jacob and Joseph, I think it's interesting that they're so bent on going back to Canaan when back in chapter, um, chapter 41, uh, 51 and 52, uh, Manasseh means, uh, you know, 47, God has made me forget all my trouble in my father's household. And Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land uh, in the land of my affliction. So you'd think that Joseph would not want to go back to Canaan because that's the place of his affliction. That's where he was betrayed. That's where his brothers treated him poorly. You would think Jacob wouldn't want to go back to Canaan. That's where his life was filled with suffering and agony constantly. He even told Pharaoh, you know, my life has been long and afflicted. It's been a terrible, evil life. And yet at the end of their life, once they see the plan of God at the end of it all, they want to go back to the place of their affliction because it's not the affliction they remember. It's that that's the place where God's promise was. Yeah. And it's amazing that God's promise finding fulfillment matters more to them than all the affliction that they suffered in that place. It's really amazing. Mm -hmm.
Let's, uh, let's move farther into this and try to make some uh, connections throughout the rest of the scriptures and make some possible parallels. Again, the most obvious parallel in the story of Joseph would be Jesus. Uh, Joseph is is the closest we get to Jesus and the character of Jesus and uh, the, the, the actions, the attitude of Jesus in the book of Genesis. And uh, I recognize there are so many different parallels we could make here. Um, but, you know, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts about some things that you see that reminded you of other places in Scripture, other people we see down the line that uh, kind of magnify some aspects of what we've read. Well, Brian was just talking about Canaan. And, of course, in Hebrews, we have Canaan as a figure for heaven. You know, they long to go back to Canaan. Mm-hmm. Take my bones to Canaan. Mm-hmm. You know, well, mm-hmm. well, that's uh, that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. We sing the song to Canaan land. I'm on my way. Oh yeah. So that should be familiar to us. Um, <clears throat> very good uh, thought there. Um, well, I I think. One thing that impresses me about the whole of Genesis is that right from the very beginning, God is releasing information about the future. He's telling us right from chapter 3 that someone is coming. In chapter 3, he's a conqueror. Mm. In chapter 12, he brings up this when this promise is fulfilled, it's a blessing. Chapter 49, he's a king and a lawgiver. And he's our peace, as Mm. other passages, both in the Old and New Testament, will refer to this one that this is referring to, who is Jesus. He's our peace. Mm. And and what really has impressed me about particularly chapter uh, verse 10 or 49, is that this, there was not even a nation. In reality, there was no nation yet. That promise had not been fulfilled. There was no land fulfillment promise, but he was promising a king. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I know we didn't go over every single brother and mm-hmm. the promises, but some of these promises do have relationships to where those tribes ended up settling. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously the most obvious one thing uh, uh, aspect is um, with Simeon and Levi, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Mm-hmm. We see that very plainly in that you had the Levite cities scattered out throughout Israel. Uh, Simeon just sort of was absorbed. So uh, that's kind of what happens with that tribe. Um and, and, and there's a number of other things that we could see. I think, uh, I think. Uh, Zebulun by the shore. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
And so there's a number of things we could see there, but uh, I think um, uh, you know we can appreciate that even, and, and, and that's such a good point that even though there was not the land, you know, they weren't there at the land yet. There's this idea of preparation that God is making clear. It's also an indication that they were living by faith that this was going to happen. Right. And they wouldn't see it, but their descendants would not only see it, but receive it. Yeah, let's, let's talk about sort of at the end of this 400 years, because you know, the, the, the awesome thing about this is, as we've discussed as well, God is setting them up in a situation where they're going to be in a land where they are uh, basically despised as being unclean. Uh, they're going to be separate from the people, which again, chapter 50 is fascinating to me that they're separate and they despise these people because of their profession, but they're willing to go up and mourn with them over this man that they've never met until just recently. Uh, so that's kind of interesting to me. Uh, the, the other aspect is, I, I think at the end of that 400 years, you still have faith among the Israelites. But, uh, you know, they haven't abandoned God, but maybe they're sort of on their last strings there. Um, and, and you see their frustration with Moses when Moses is trying to free them, and yet Pharaoh is o- over here trying to uh, bring more pressure onto them. I'd love y'all's thoughts about that, if you have any. Well, obviously, the Egyptians' um, love of the family has a lot to do with with Joseph. I mean, he's the man, and they got more lovable when they found out they were kin to him. You know, that's the, the idea. This is, a, but um, you know, we also understand that this is all setting up. It's just another step in the in the story, isn't it? You know, the, the most important thing here is that we now have God's people in Egypt grow into a great nation. The big picture is next thing, Exodus leaving. We're going to be leaving this place. We're heading to that promised land. And why are we going to the promised land? Because it's there that the Savior will be born in the fullness of time. So it's, it's all... Um, I assume folks that listen to this are good Bible students, but if somebody's a new Bible student, you know, it's a point I'm sure you guys make regularly. It's good to make. Mm-hmm. Now, the Bible is a book of books, but it tells one story. You know, the old point about uh, 40 writers, 1,400 years, and yet one story. And that's, uh, that's what we see step by step, and God working his plan. We think it's amazing that he worked in the life of Joseph. He's working on a bigger scale than that, isn't he? We know. And um, so so you, you, you in this section, I guess, making connections with, well, the whole New Testament is connected with this, isn't it, really? I mean, the other book as a whole is connected. So it's, it's, it's great to remember that. And, and this book is, uh, geographically talking, the canvas of the rest of, of Scripture. And, and all these locations, you know, from Ur the Chaldees all the way around to Egypt and, you know, back and forth. Uh, we see basically the setting, you know, every book. Uh, I think one of the lectures mentioned today that the Bible has a setting. Um, maybe that was Brother Leon. Uh, and, and how, you know, our setting is being established right here. And even though there's a lot of things, you know, um, 
we've talked all through Scripture. One of the themes we've been seeing is that this is uh, a theme throughout the book of separation. You know, God is separated from man. And then later on, uh, you know, families become separated from each other. Um, you know, even before that, the Tower of Babel, man is separated from himself. Um, and yet now at the end of it, you have the people coming together. And uh, just really fascinating how the Holy Spirit decided to arrange all of this together. And uh, helps us so much in understanding the rest of, of the Bible. Um, I guess one from 48. Uh, so this, this is a really interesting one. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil in 48.16. It's really interesting that he says that about the Lord. Um, because that means that who God was to him is who God is to us. Uh, like if you look at Psalm 18. Uh, in Second Samuel 22, um, it's verse 1. Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are directly parallel with each other. Um, but the heading for Psalm 18 talks about how David wrote it. He spoke to the Lord the words of the song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of Saul. <coughs> Uh, and from the hand of all his enemies. So just like Jacob said, the angels are doing me from all evil. David is saying, God has redeemed me from all evil. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, mm-hmm. verse 11, uh, Paul's talking about his persecutions, sufferings as it happened at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. So the same the same God who delivered Jacob from all his distresses and evil, delivered David from all his evil, delivered Paul from all his evil. It seems like that's one of the thematic qualities of who God is to his people is he's a deliverer, a perpetual deliverer from all evil and all trouble. Um, you see that in the Psalms, and it's just interesting to see him say that particularly about God at the end of his life. I mean, there's, I, I think there's just, everything about Joseph is a type, you know, like him saying, you know, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. I mean, that's so clearly Jesus, you know, yes. like Jesus being crucified and that being an intention of evil, but then God turned that into a preservation of life instead of... spell that so clearly in John. Oh, yeah. Caiaphas saying, yeah, he's yeah. going to die for the people. Right. Not even knowing what he's saying. Right. Yeah. And, and just and, the, the guilt they held on to. Okay. And I was going to say another thing that has impressed me about his answer to the brothers. Mm-hmm. For am I in the place of God? Yeah. And he was just in the right place to play God to them. Yes. And that's often what men do to each other. Yes. When they can have the authority or the rule over others, they just, it's a wonderful thing that's to be grasped and to be pursued. But He's shown his total humility and subjection to God, yeah. which is also Christ-like. His, his his own grace and mercy, yes, toward toward his toward his brothers. Yeah. Let's think about that in, in the sense where he's there with Potiphar's wife. You know, how can I commit this sin against God? He realized that he was it's he wasn't <clears throat> that his relationship was with God. Yes. It wasn't that he was God. And I think about like yeah. I think about when Peter approaches Cornelius and Cornelius bows before Peter and Peter stand up. Stand up. I'm too I am a man. Yeah. You know, don't look at me that way. And, and, you know, excuse me, and I'm just gonna add and then 
course, a, a great man like Moses forgot himself. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, yes. mm. oh, you rebels, shall we fetch you water? And God said, who's we? Yeah. <laughs> and he, you know, so there's the contrast. And I always, I also think this is a, a good lesson for preachers because we are in a position of influence over people. And sometimes it goes to our head. Mm. And we are the boss. Right. We are the one who knows. And really, it shouldn't be like that. <laughs> Although we have influence over other people, because of what we may know or whatever we've been blessed with and we preach and teach the Word of God, we are their servants. We are not their masters. Mm. Yeah, that, that actually reminds me of Jesus too, because in John chapter 5, mm-hmm. 22, it says the Father does not even judge anyone. Or I'll just I'll read it as it said, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. But in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So the verse right before that, where it says, God did not send the Son to the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It's like you almost get the idea that the Father and the Son are playing hot potato with judgment, you know. But they're doing that so that people can be saved and not condemned as much as possible. It seems like Jesus is saying, look, I could judge. God has entrusted all judgment to me, but I'm trying to save life and not destroy it. Mm-hmm. And so that seems like Joseph is saying, like, I'm in the position to destroy your lives, but I'm using this position to save your lives. What have we been talking about in terms of God's nature in this book, too? God restrains himself. Yes. Oh, man. That Think of awesome. if he did not control his emotions, oh, if he did yeah. not control his reactions to things. Oh, where would we be? Yeah. Yeah. Toast. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wow. And wow. That's just and, so and then on that same note, I want to say this too. In verse 21 of chapter 50. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Mm. That quote could be in Jesus' lips. That, mm. that could be something that he might have actually yeah. said. Yeah, amen. Uh, and and that, that just is fascinating. John 6. Oh, yeah. I give you true food. Mm. The bread which I give you endures to eternal life. The, the, he gives them true food and true drink, his blood and his body. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Very good. So I've got one more. This is a really quick and simple one. Romans 9, 10, and 11. There's another, uh, I think another fulfillment of inheritance being lost because of sin against the Father. And so the right then passed to another. In Romans, it talks about how Israel, the flesh, lost their right to their citizenship and to the promises of God because they rejected Christ, which was a sin against the Father. And so then the right then passes to another. I've said on this program before, uh, if if we go to every Bible study we can, every uh, hear every sermon we can, uh, read as much as we can, yet we don't actually apply it ourselves, uh, the text is useless to us. Um, 
and we recognize there are men who claim to be experts and say they've read the Bible, but they don't appreciate it for what it says it is. And uh, so we want to make sure that, that this is benefiting us, that we're understanding uh, some very good things, you know, some things that we can pull out of these chapters and uh, to live lives that are truly changed, truly converted, fit for the master's use. And uh, uh, Brother Patty, you mentioned something a minute ago about how we all have an Egypt and what will eventually be happening with the, the children of Israel. And I'd like for you to expound on that a little bit more. One thing that strikes me, particularly about the enslavement, which will come in the, in the next chapter, uh, the next book, but we all have an Egypt. And we've all been enslaved. Okay. But we have a Savior who's released us from that slavery. And that's what you've got here. But at the same time, you've got God's people being isolated from the other people, which God's people always should be isolated or separated from other people. Well, he'll, he'll bring them out of that Egyptian bondage. And he'll give them the land that he has promised to their forefathers. They will be inheriting this blessing. Well... He's doing the same things for us through Christ. That He's taking us out of our own personal Egypt where we are in bondage to sin. And he's giving us the promise of a land that he's made, of a place rather, that he's made to all men who follow him. And when you come out of that bondage, that's the reward that you get. But at the same time that uh, I started to mention another thing that I think applies is that the Jews were separated from the Egyptians because the Egyptians despised shepherds for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But it didn't stop apparently a, some, sort, some intermingling because the gods of the Egyptians became the gods of the Jews, the ones that was their major problem for centuries and sometimes uh, when we come out of this bondage like they came out of Egypt what we're doing is we're carrying this baggage their baggage was primarily idolatry and sometimes we don't die to that baggage, we try to bring it with us. Mm. And it never works. Mm. It never works. It results in what I would call unconverted Christians. Exactly. People are wondering, what can I take from my past life and incorporate into what I have now? Mm. Versus, let's start from the ground up yes. and build this building in the way that God wants us to. Wow. And it really gets in the way of the blessings because the blessings in Genesis 49 are not fulfilled in so many ways because of their hidden idolatry. Hmm. Uh, just an illustration of, of what I'm talking about. We have a friend in South Africa who was raised as a Hindu. His father was a Hindu teacher. Hmm. And 
So he was married and she was Hindu. They had four children and they were being brought up as Hindu. And then he came across somebody who taught, he was searching and somebody taught him the gospel. And when we met them, they said to us, <coughs> we realized that we could not practice many things in Hinduism when we became Christians because those things were being done to the Hindu gods. And even simple things like, and great things like people celebrating birthdays, well, it had an, it had something to do with their culture. And so that cut them off from their family. And it taught me a lesson because I've worked among people who all their lives have battled with this issue of, of what is our culture. Mm. And everybody has culture. But when you become a Christian, you get a new culture mm. and that mm. old culture has to be set aside. Mm. The two can't mix. Mm. Mm. And just like Egypt and Canaan can't mix. Interesting. Amen. Mm. It's interesting you see Jacob and Joseph like with that resolve to be entirely unmixed with when they died. They said... Even in death, we want no, we want no association. You know, just making it clear, like I'm only here to stay here with the people. When they're mm -hmm. out, I'm out. So you can tell that, that that they wanted no, no lasting association at all. So that's really interesting. So would you say that like Egypt represents death, while Canaan represents life? Hmm. Which, well, which like much like yeah, just thinking about like. Romans 6, the, the, the death beforehand and oh, life yeah, after. Yeah. And, really uh, Ephesians 2, the, wow. yes, the, you were dead in the your life sins. of sin versus mm -hmm. wow. newness of life. Yeah, that's really good. Yes, Egypt is your death. Wow. Because that's, if you Heaven stay in that condition, yeah. if you stay in that land, you're dead, spiritually speaking, mm. or you're going to die. And life is outside of that land. Mm. And the, for them, Life was not in Egypt. Life was in Canaan. That's what they were looking for. And that's what we ought to be looking for. Mm. The Canaan, but not the land Canaan. The Canaan that you were speaking about, which is heaven. There, there are a few passages in the Bible about sanctification, aren't there? <laughs> Just a few. Come out and be you separate. Mm. Yes. That's the point. And, and you know, that principle, I think, is all through the Scriptures. And God knew mm. that when His people mixed with other cultures and other people, that they were going to be dirtied mm. or soiled by those people. And that's exactly what happened to, eat, mm. to the Jews because they did not do what God told them, mm. is to take the people out of the land and not mix with them. And just to clarify for any new listeners, we are not talking about uh, the physical aspects of these things. We're talking about the the undue spiritual influence that mm -hmm. these cultures would have had on the Israelites. And I think that's the intent of all this. Um, and it's the same intent under the new law in Christ. You know, I, I find that we do have even people I would call brethren today that seem to resist this notion of separation and mm -hmm. seem, seem to not want to make it too plain to their friends from denominations that 
you know, I, I don't approve of the way you're doing these things. Or mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't be tolerant and communicate and love people, but it just means that we can't accept that. Um, I, I'd love y'all's thoughts about uh, maybe some of the experiences you've had with that or uh, just maybe some solutions you see to that kind of mindset. Well, I don't know if this is a solution, but uh, it seems to me, how would you describe being a Christian? Mm-hmm. In one word, I think the word different describes what a Christian is supposed to be like. I mean, everything the Bible tells us about God's people is that they were different from the people that they mingled with. And that's one of the marks of Mm -hmm. Christianity. Uh, Because you wear a uniform, that's an outward sign of difference. But it doesn't make any difference if you're not different in the way you behave. And in my experience with people overseas, uh, every denomination has their uniform. And I remember people asking me, well, what is the uniform of the Christian? And I've heard some people say they don't have a uniform. And I thought, well, that's not true. You do have a uniform. Your uniform is Christ put on Christ that's what and what does that mean well was Christ like those other people was he like the rest of the Jews well he wasn't I mean then everybody could see that this guy is not like everybody else yeah he doesn't talk like them he's got he talks with authority he does things he helps people he's so different in everything he's doing and everything he is to the religious leaders, the shepherds of Israel, that were in, in, in the day. Well, and, and when you think about Romans 6, we die and are buried and raised to what? What we were before? Mm-hmm. No. no. And, you know, when Paul said to the Colossians, you died... <laughs> What does he mean? If you were a fornicator, you're no longer because you don't do it. When you're dead, you don't do that. You're a liar. You don't do that. You're a thief. You don't do that anymore because you died. Death severs us from that thing. But just like the Jews, they did not die to idolatry. And sometimes we don't die to our anger and bitterness and envy and resentment and fornication and adultery and our own idolatry, our covetousness, our bitterness towards people. Uh, Just because you you get dipped doesn't mean you're dead. If you're still doing what you did before, you're still living in that. You're not dead to it. You're not so learned Christ. 
Exactly. That's Paul's words. Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter 4. You didn't learn that from Christ. You learned it from Egypt, (laughs) from the devil. Mm -hmm. Or you learned it in Egypt, in your own Egypt. Mm -hmm. We have been discussing in recent chapters how (coughs) there is a change to these brothers that has taken place. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about the turning point for the rest of the brothers, but I have to look back at chapter 38 with Judah and Tamar. Maybe that was the point where Judah decided he was going to get a little bit more serious about actually trying to uh, live a better life. And, uh, you know, he is so instrumental in dealing with Joseph and putting himself in this place where uh, this sacrificial attitude, this sacrificial mindset, and, uh, and, and, and it's important for us to learn from our errors. That's the thing that I think uh, might be tripping people up is that they feel uh, burdened by their past sins to the point that maybe even in the back of their minds, they still have to carry this with them somehow. Uh, but the reality is you don't have to. And, and the reality is that, that we're free in Christ. And, uh, and maybe if we all... You know, can can learn that, then we'll be more like what he wants us to be. An answer mm-hmm. of a clear, clear conscience. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you got you have anything you're thinking of, Brian? Application wise, or why well, see what you've been stewing on a few things? No, sure, that's all right. I was just wondering what what are you guys' thoughts about? Maybe some applications of um, verse 17, you know, because, I mean, there's obviously, chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 17, 15, 17, there's obviously applications of Joseph being forgiving, you know, and I I was initially thinking, you know, obviously, okay, so we need to be forgiving, but I think there's another application here that I haven't thought about um, enough. Uh, I guess I would just like to listen, really. what what are what are your thoughts on what verse seventeen and maybe the brothers' attitude toward Joseph, like seeking God's forgiveness? Like, do you guys think there's any lessons in their attitude that I guess could be applied about how we seek God's forgiveness or could take our need for forgiveness more seriously? Question on my side: um, Was their request for forgiveness honest in the first place? Uh, I mean, it It seems like they're just responding in verse 15 that, hey, dad's dead. Joseph may now act evil towards us. Uh, is it is it real prayer for forgiveness or ask for, for asking for forgiveness? Or are they um, putting words into their father's mouth? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm asking because I just don't, I can't remember the story behind it. Mm-hmm. Well, they've lied before. Uh, I think we would have to assume something in the text there about them lying here, but maybe I'm, I'm, I'd like to listen as well. well I'm sorry, that was just leading to yeah, your yeah. your question, Seth. Well, I don't know if this helps, but how long was Jacob in Egypt before he died? Hmm. Seventeen years. 
Right. 17 years. Yeah, verse 28, chapter 20, 47, and Jacob lived in okay. the land of Egypt for From 17 years. At least. Yeah. Okay, so for 17 years, they have witnessed Joseph's reaction to what they did to him. And as far as the record goes, there's no sense of retribution, there's no sense of hatred, there's no sense of bitterness towards them. All you've got is the forgiveness and his humility because he's been acting as the servant of God. This is God's plan unfolding, not mine. And uh, I think, I've always thought that the brothers... Uh, for desire for forgiveness had a genuineness to it mm -hmm. because the evidence was there that they were forgiven. Mm -hmm. But I think just like people who are so guilt-ridden for what they've done mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they always think other people are going to act like they acted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course as someone mentioned earlier, Joseph is just like Jesus. He was not going to act like they acted toward him. But he was acting in a way that was for in their best interest, in spite of what they had done to him. And that's what true forgiveness is. And that's what true love is, that you... And when I think about Joseph in this area, I think of him almost like saying, okay, they've done this horrible thing to me. I, I've been separated from family for 13 years. I never go back to my homeland except in a coffin. I've missed all these years with my dearest brother with my father and these other family members uh, would how would I feel if all of those things I've been treated like an animal I've been falsely accused uh, I, I've been abused in every way that you can uh, they hurt him that's what Psalm says they hurt him with the fetters when he was taken to Egypt. So how do you how do you get rid of that? How do you forget that? Well, that's you, exactly what Jesus did. Yeah, exactly. That's that's uh, how do you say, Father, forgive them? Right. If you still remember, yeah, and they don't how, like what they do. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, and so I, it's. I think it's hard for us to be able to forget. And and I, I know people who, they remember everything. <laughs> My mother had uh, a bitterness toward people that were dead. And I, I remember saying to her one day, after she became a Christian, and she only became a Christian when she was 75 years old, and I said, Mom, you're doing more damage to yourself. Those people 
they don't care anymore about what happened between you. And sometimes you don't even remember what happened between you. You just know that something happened and you resent it. Mm. I said, you're doing more damage to yourself. Even if they were still living, what do they remember? Mm. And who cares what they think? You've forgiven them because you have been forgiven. Mm. So just let it go. Mm. It's like unforgiveness is like a cancer that just eats you up. And you can't be spiritually minded and keep retaining the things that people have done to you. Amen. It just doesn't work. Otherwise, we would be forever in hell if Jesus, if the Lord kept remembering what we've done. And just uh, not not in a form of disagreement with that at all. I, I wonder if there's a part of this too that they did indeed approach him about this and they did indeed ask for forgiveness. Um, that I, I'm sure we've all seen the brother who goes forward and says, if I have done anything wrong, please forgive me. <laughs> can, be, yeah. can we see an issue there? Is there, yes. is there uh, you know, to me, I'm not sure that that's the same thing that these brothers are doing. Yeah. Now, I think to follow up on that, I don't think that you know, you still don't hold on to anything, right? Mm-hmm. I think you can move past that, always be ready and, and, and willing to forgive. Um, but you know, in, in that sense, I think you can move past that, uh, even without it being resolved, and right. wait for them to approach you. Right. Yeah, because it's interesting. It's like they're seeking forgiveness so desperately gave opportunity for forgiveness to reach its maximum. Yes. Like, grace could abound all the more because they were so humbled. You know, because like, it's interesting in verse 17, I don't even know if these words have been used very much in Genesis, transgression. Mm. You know, where did they get that language? But it's like, them seeking forgiveness so desperately made it so sure that they had received it. And I think maybe that can be at the heart of people doubting doubting forgiveness and holding on to things because they really maybe have not actually sought God's forgiveness as desperately as they should have. Which brings me to like Psalm 51. How desperately did David want God's forgiveness when he knew he was guilty? You know, one thing I just thought about that makes this request for forgiveness more sincere, they didn't ask for it when they found out this guy was Joseph. Hmm. Hmm. They asked about it after, after the father's gone. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. something to think about there. Uh, to me, that kind of builds up the possibility that this is this is a real, <laughs> genuine outreach. Yeah. Well, that could be the, the 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 thought that hey, there's this event now is happening. That's the thing that triggers the 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 genuineness mm-hmm. is there. I mean, I know that that happens as well. That there's there's a life event that happens and. The person becomes more genuine because of the life event, mm-hmm. and then truthfully does seek in a different way, right? Um, than yeah. than maybe they had done previously. Right. So I mean, I was the question was just. It seemed odd that they were coming at this directly thereafter, but there's there's obviously I, we would be reading something into it to assume there. 
I think another thing about forgiveness is that it's a two-sided coin. If you don't forgive yourself, but you expect God to forgive you, or the one you've offended, it's not going to work because you'll always re- you've always got it in your mind. And you know, going back to this idea of you die and you become a new person. Well, don't you de- die to the guilt? and the regret of what you've done mm. as well. Or isn't that part of what you... You're coming, you're coming out of a terrible life into a new life. Why would you want to bring that regret or that guilt with you? That's one of the things that makes people stumble, I think. From the tactic of Satan. Exactly. The, the um, um, what's the expression that Paul used? Uh, the device of Satan. Uh, it, it's almost forgiven. like we think we're superior to God. He can he'll forgive and forget, but I won't forget <laughs> what I've done. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, I should never remember or think about it. I, I think about some things that I did when I was a boy. And I am sorry for them. I have asked for forgiveness. But it's taught me a lesson that those kinds of things should not be done so that you will regret what you've done. <laughs> Paul never forgot his sin. No. But Paul did not let guilt crush him. Yes. He believed in the providence and in the, in the grace of God, and I think you make a very good point. Yeah, yeah, because it's almost like there's a degree of humbling oneself that gives greater confidence in having received forgiveness. You know, it's almost like I was looking back. I don't think Joseph's brothers had ever specifically asked his forgiveness in the story yet. I was looking back when he revealed himself to them, and they were dismayed at his presence. But then he immediately said, "Go get my father." So that whole time, you know, they haven't one time said, we're so sorry yeah. for what we've done. So it's like now that Jacob's gone and that kind of in-between is gone, now it's like we need to ask, we need to beg him now for forgiveness. You know, and it just seems like the struggle of not accepting God's forgiveness or not thinking God, like not forgiving myself oftentimes for me has been not trusting God's end of forgiveness enough because I simply haven't humbled myself enough to trust him because the more I trust God's power to forgive, the more I trust that it's real mm-hmm. and that as powerful as it is, is as real as it is. And on wrestling with those things that we've done, uh, isn't it going to help the person that's wronged us if we receive them as graciously right. as Joseph as receives them? Yeah. Hey, you know what? This gave me an opportunity to work through some things, you know. Yeah. Not, I mean, it's not like we have to say thank you for doing it, but uh, we can appreciate the positives from it. Well, do y'all have anything else to add? I know we're great discussion. I know it's pretty late and we're all tired. So, <laughs> well, I didn't realize something, that something at least that it's come across my mind at least is is forgiveness is liberating. Yeah. 
Yes, it's, it's, it, it removes so many, so many burdens uh, from all sides yeah. of, of any event. So, you know, forgiveness is maybe something that we don't want to talk about a lot because it's typically uncomfortable. But forgiveness in itself is something that truthfully does uh, open us up to having a clear conscience. Yeah. Amen. And to being at peace with yeah. ourselves and with others. Yeah. And I think to being at peace with the Lord. We want to thank you so much for listening. Next time, Lord willing, we'll be going into the book of Exodus. Until then, study well and be lights to God's glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.